Today we're going to talk about blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. How appropriate they shall be called the sons of God. For God is the peacemaker, and we need to tell other people, to tell the people that are trying to find out about peace, about him. And so we're going to talk about peace today, and we're going to talk about the cost of peace, the place of peace, and the process of peace. How can we be the peacemaker? Because it doesn't just talk about peace. The sense of what Jesus was saying at this point was, how can we, having come to know peace ourselves, become like God, like Father, like Son? How can we be peacemakers? For he is our peace, he is our peacemaker. Then how can we mirror his character as we work to reconcile people to each other. And what a needy ministry that is. And I'm hoping, as you listen today, that you'll just plug in on a personal level, will you? And sort of open yourself up inside as you listen. And see if you can hear the Spirit of God instructing you very practically, giving you a handle on something you can do in a situation between two warring factions. Now, if you don't know any warring factions, (laughs) then I'd like to meet you afterwards (laughs) because it'll probably be a first. But I'm sure all of us can think of situations in our lives, perhaps in our family, perhaps in our own family, or perhaps in our extended family, or perhaps in the family of the neighborhood, or in families of your friends that you know, or in the cultural situation that you find yourself in in your extracurricular activities during the week where somebody needs to be the peacemaker. And you know, one of the problems with sticking to our rights as we so jealously guard them is this right to privacy. And we do have a right to privacy, but it stops us sometimes, I think, being a peacemaker. We are so shy of intruding into somebody else's private affairs that we would rather not infringe, and we back off. And yet the Christian is called to take whatever flack they might have and make the effort anyway and be the peacemaker that God wants us to be. Now, Billy Graham said, Jesus didn't leave a material inheritance to his disciples. All he had when he died was a robe which went to the Roman soldiers, his mother, who he turned over to his brother, John, his body, which he gave to Joseph of Arimathea, and his spirit, which returned to God his Father. But Jesus willed his followers something far more valuable than gold, far more enduring than land holdings, and more to be desired than palaces of marble. He willed us his peace. What a beautiful quote. John 14, 27, key verse, peace I leave with you, Jesus speaking, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not, therefore, your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And you know you can go to sleep on that verse, and you can wake up on it. And whether you face hospital tests, or trauma, or emotional pain, or whatever it is that faces you as you begin your day, you can take John 14:27 with you into your day and remind yourself of this promise that Christ promised you 
his peace. Christ was a very peaceful person. He was a together person. And of course, that's what the word really means. An inner togetherness, an orderliness inside. Augustine, it was, that defined peace as the tranquility of order. And I love that definition. The tranquility of order. Think about that. I remember bringing a young man to Christ years and years ago in our street work. And he was the young man that went back into the pub the next day to try and tell his friends a little bit of what had happened to him. He didn't know why he wanted to tell them. He didn't know anything about being a Christian, saying he was one day old in Christ. But as he sat looking into his beer, one of his friends said, Is anything wrong, Trevor? And he looked up and he said, No, everything's right. Everything's right. I'm together inside. I'm together inside. Are you together inside? That's a sort of description of peace. Now, in the last 4,000 years, there have been 300 years of peace. In the last 4,000 years. And the 300 years of uneasy peace has been disturbed by little wars somewhere. There has never been a time on this planet since sin entered the heart of man when war did not exist. Maybe it was the war between Cain and Abel when brother rose up to kill brother. But from then on in, it's been a sad story. And man, who was made to be a peaceful creature, has searched for the peace that he lost ever since. I was watching a very interesting movie with my husband on television. It was about the making of the atom bomb. It took me back to the traumatic mushroom cloud that appeared on our newspapers and in our magazines and in our nightmares, and perhaps has done ever since. And it was the story in this movie of a Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, who, of course, was the supervisor of the creation of that bomb. He was the young scientist who struggled through the making of it. And you can imagine what was happening internally in his conscience as he put together the most destructive force that the world had ever known up to that point. When he was in front of the Congressional Commission reporting that the bomb was ready to be used and dropped, a member of Congress said, Dr. Oppenheimer, is there any defense against this awesome new weapon of war? Certainly, the young man replied. And that is, the congressman asked, The audience waited in subdued silence. Peace, the eminent scientist replied softly. Peace. Is there any defense? Peace. Peace in the individual heart. Peace in the family. Peace in the neighborhood. Peace in the town. Peace in the city. Peace in the country. And peace in the world. But it starts with peace in the human heart, individually. Everybody's searching for peace. 
Billy Graham has a whole list in his Secret of Happiness book. If everyone made a lot of money, we'd have peace. Have you ever heard anybody think that? If only I had a lot of money, then I wouldn't have to struggle and worry and I'd have peace. If all the arms were destroyed in the world, if all the guns were collected in a heap and destroyed, maybe then we'd have peace. Yet Cain killed Abel without a gun. And you know it's amazing what you can do with your bare hands. And if you ever doubt that, go to the movies and see some of these ghastly things if you want to. I don't want to and I don't do it. But I do see some of these movies on television or see the pictures that come off them. And the incredible violence that's perpetrated on one man against another with his bare hands defies description. Maybe it's in the bottle, that's where peace is. But it doesn't last. The effects wear off. Maybe it's in knowledge, yet all the degrees that we get aren't enough. Maybe it's in the religions of the world, these wild, new, exotic ideas, these mind-warping cults. And yet still, people that get into those things know that they haven't arrived and there's no peace. Maybe it's in secure relationships, And where are you going to find them in this day and age? George Barna says, it's going to get worse. We'll remain a society struggling with self-doubt and low self-esteem as technology advances and the deterioration of social skills continues. America will feel increasingly isolated. Americans. Measures such as cohabitation will not fill the gap. Our dominant obstacle to emotional attachments will be our fear of being hurt, and our unwillingness to sacrifice material comforts and leisure experiences in exchange for new relationships. So, people search for peace all over the place, but they don't find it. And the simple fact is there can be no real peace in the world until we have peace with God. Now, we know that, but does the world know it? This tranquility of order only comes because Christ made our peace through the blood of the cross. And Colossians 1.20 says, Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. Just turn to Ephesians for a moment, because that's one of the most important passages. And I don't have time to take it to bits for you, but it would be a very rich study for yourself. I would recommend it to you. Ephesians 2.14. Let's start a little bit back, verse 12. Remember that at a time, he, um, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian Christians, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
marvelous, marvelous passage. He came to break down the hostility. He put to death the hostility. He has made peace. And you and I are to keep the unity of the peace. If peace is broken, somebody has deliberately broken it because peace has been made. We don't have to make peace. Christ made it. Now what we do with sin is get busy breaking it. And as Christians, we are told to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this peace with God is where it begins. And that's what we need to tell people. And when people come to me and say, can you help me, as they often do, with this relationship, with my marriage relationship, with my relationship with my children, my first question is, have you made peace with God yourself? And they often say, well, what's that got to do with him and her and them? And I say, well, it's got more to do with them than you realize, because unless you have the Prince of Peace in your heart, there is absolutely no way you can be a peacemaker in this particular situation. You can try, you can come out with little techniques, you can counsel, you can learn how to do that, but without the Holy Spirit's work reconciling, for Christ did it, and now the Holy Spirit is here to do it through us, then without him, it's not going to work. So this is the peace of God that we all need to know. Do you know this peace? Have you asked Christ to forgive your enmity, your hostility against him, and to bring you back to him, to be reconciled to God, because that's where peace begins. This peace passes all understanding, the Bible says. It says that this peace garrisons your heart and mind. And that word garrison, keep your heart and mind through Christ. And the word keep is garrison. This peace of God will put a garrison Uh, like peace soldiers, like a peacekeeping force around your heart, your emotions, and your mind. I I was reminded of Dr. Wood's testimony from this pulpit when he stood to testify to open-heart surgery. And it was incredibly powerful and moving to me to hear a top surgeon himself who has operated on many a heart describe what it was like himself to be laid out on that operating table ready for five bypasses. Massive, massive operation. And what did he say at the end of that testimony? You had better be ready, for your turn will come, he told us. And that was a warning prophetic message. You had better be ready. Do you know the God of peace? Do you know the God of peace? And it really struck me that he had been able to make sure there was peace in his own relationship with God before he faced that very risky operation where they stop your heart. You can't operate on a heart that's beating and hopefully can get it going again. As he described making peace with his God and making peace with his wife, making peace with his children, making sure that all the relationships in his life were right. I was very, very challenged. And then he described how the peace of God garrisoned his heart and his mind as he lay there, as he said, wearing only an IV. (laughs) I tell you, it's times like that we need to know the peace of God garrisoning our heart and mind. And this peace passes understanding. You can understand all sorts of other sort of peace when you're not facing open heart surgery, when everything's hunky-dory and, you know, your life's all in place. Then, of course, you can have peace. But what about when life is falling apart? 
You see, peace is not the cessation of hostilities or trauma. Peace is peace in the middle of it. That's the peace I'm talking about. That's the peace that God talks about. Psalm 27. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. Though war shall rise against me, in this shall I be confident. It's like having a hedge around you so that those that would besiege us are kept at bay. This is what God desires for us. This is his inheritance. He left it with us. Remember, he left his body to the soldiers. He left his mother with John. He left his spirit with his father, and he gave us his peace. Now, this isn't peace at any price. Let's start and get practical at this point. Peace isn't appeasement, okay? Peace isn't appeasement. And I don't know, I think somehow your personality comes into this somewhere. If you're a mother, what sort of a mother were you or are you? Peace at any price, mother? I tended to be a little like that. I, I couldn't stand the confrontation. I'd always be anticipating it. And I'd try and get there before war broke out. And I'd try and start and put into effect peaceful resolutions before anything needed them. Because I hate conflict, personality conflicts. I find that very difficult to live among and to cope with. In fact, my sister said to me once, Jill, life is too short for me to fall out with people. I thought that was a wonderful thing. I've always remembered it. A wonderful person, my sister, and she's lived by some of those principles. Life is too short to fall out with people. I will live in peace. And maybe your personality lends to that, or maybe your personality is very warlike. Maybe you're not part of the solution. You're usually part of the problem. And maybe that's because of your personality. Let's have a fight, is what you love to do, because that's how you're made. Well, whether you're made one way or another, the peace of God can make you peaceful, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be a peacemaker who appeases people. Peace of God was not at any price. It was at immense cost. And that's the first thing I want to talk about, the cost of making peace between people. Once you have the peace of God, you want them to share it, and you want to see peace spill over into their families, their relationships. This is going to be a costly thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. Stott says there's such a thing as cheap peace. And cheap peace won't produce what you want it to produce. Peace at any price. Let's forget about accountability. Let's forget about repentance. Let's forget about restitution. Let's forget about asking for forgiveness. Let's forget about confronting. That's cheap peace. And the problem with a peace that lasts is it's a painful thing. But I tell you, I think we human beings do not want anything to happen in our lives that, that hurts us. You know, I don't like pain. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not for one, you know, give me pain. We'll be talking about some people that literally beg to be martyrs. Not me. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I, I hope and pray that will never happen to me because I don't like pain. And it takes pain to produce peace because there's no such thing as a cheap 
peace that's going to last. For example, the pain of apologizing. Have you ever had to apologize to someone? Yeah, that's a pain in one sense, and it feels like a pain in another sense. There's the pain of being misunderstood as you apologize, as you try and make peace, perhaps if you're at fault. There's the pain when you're not at fault of trying to be a peacemaker and have your efforts thrown back in your face. There's the pain of rejection. All this pain comes into being. Stott says, and this is a new thought, and some of you are going to wrestle a little bit with this because I certainly did. He says, sometimes there's the nagging pain of having to refuse to forgive the guilty party until he repents. God forgave us only when we repented. Now think, think this through. God forgave us only when we repented. Jesus told us to do the same. Now I struggled with this. I thought, now wait a minute. We have to forgive whether people repent or not. But when you think of repentance as a gift, it makes sense. You are offering as a free gift somebody forgiveness. If they don't accept it, how can you forgive them? They will only experience forgiveness as they accept it. Reconciliation will only happen when two parties are involved. Luke 17.3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. We have to always be willing to forgive. But we cannot forgive until somebody accepts the forgiveness that we offer. How can we forgive, Stott says? The sin is neither admitted nor regretted. So there's going to be a lot of pain in the process of figuring out, not peace at any price, oh, it doesn't matter. Yes, you did this terrible thing to me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Yes, it does matter. It did matter. It was terrible. It must be admitted. It needs to be repented of and dealt with. And so it isn't peace at any price. And that means pain. As I thought of pain, I took it as an acrostic, P-A-I-N, and I thought of what it involved. The pain of persevering when it hurts. Because we're fond of ourselves, we give up. Have you tried to make peace in a situation? You gave up. Why? Because it began to get painful. P stands for persevere. Don't give up. A stands for acceptance. Acceptance of what? Acceptance of pain as part of the process. But acceptance if repentance is the result of your peacemaking. Now, accept apologies gracefully. Gracefully. Mercifully. Extend mercy. Love covers a multitude of sins. When the repentance happens and you, with your willingness to forgive, have offered your gift and it's been received and accepted, accept it. Take a step towards them. Make it easy. Don't make them crawl. Make it easy. Make it easy. Think of the father running down the road to meet the son. He didn't run after him when he went away. And he waited until he repented before he forgave him. But as soon as he repented, he was halfway there. 
He saw him coming a great way off, and he ran down the road to him. Accept the apologies gracefully. Somebody said to me, I'm too hurt to reply to this letter asking me for forgiveness. Yes, I'm willing to forgive. And when I see him, I will tell him I have forgiven him. But at the moment, I need time. Try and accept the apologies as soon as you can. I initiate meetings, even if you are the wronged one. And this will be painful. Be painful. Be the initiator. God was the initiator. He's the peacemaker. He initiated peace with man by taking a step, a giant one from heaven to earth, in fact, from highest heaven to cross and to hell. That's a pretty big step. But he initiated it. He was the one that initiated it. P-A-I-N. Don't nag. Nagging is unforgiveness showing. Or to put it another way, nagging is pain. Plainly seen. And when I hear somebody nagging, it's their pain showing. It's their unforgiveness showing. Their willingness to forgive isn't there. But nagging is unforgiveness. And so all of this will be involved as you begin a personal peacemaking foray or else you begin to try and get other people to make peace. You know what I love to do, and I haven't had time to do it yet, but I'm going to just go along this little Bible pathway on my own when I have half an hour, is just to figure out how many times Jesus touched people's lives and peace happened. And as I began to even think about it in the car, talking about it with Stuart coming in, we started to think of all these times when Jesus touched people's lives and people were reconciled. What a study. Even when he stood in front of Herod, he didn't say anything to Herod, and he was sent away to be crucified. But the Bible says that day Herod and Pilate became friends because they'd been enemies. Even as he was on the way to the cross, he was bringing people together even his enemies. The thief on the cross, he made sure that he helped him to be reconciled to God. Jesus was always reconciling people. So it takes pain. Secondly, it takes patience to produce peace. We are an instant people. This is another reason we're not very good pacemakers in the Church of Jesus Christ in America takes patience, and we're not very patient people. Patience means long-suffering, suffering long with a suffering situation. And again, we don't like pain, and we don't like things that don't come together tomorrow. And if this is going to take a year or two years or three years, forget it. I'll get on with my life. I've got other relationships. That can just, you know, be written off. It can be a bad account. Now forget it and start again. It takes patience to produce peace. Peace takes time, in other words. And time is something we're not very good at using wisely. The peace process is complicated. And we need to commit for the long haul. But Christ is our peace. For this we have Jesus. And he will give us his patience. And when ours runs out, he says, Good, now you're finished, I'll begin. And we draw on his spirit of patience. Jesus said in Luke 17, when he told us, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. 
He said, the next verse, if he comes to you seven times and asks you to forgive him, you forgive him seven times. You patiently work at it over time, seven times, a hundred times. And for that, you're going to need Jesus. He's the only one that knows how to go on and on and on, being the peacemaker when war is continually raised against him. Let's think of an acrostic for patience. To be practical, P stands for patience or patiently saying it's done. This, again, isn't peace at any price. It's not being patient with sin. It's being patient with the the sinner. And that's different. For example, I heard somebody talking once about a child that wasn't doing something right, and the parent was trying to get him to do this thing right. And he said, patience isn't being patient with his stupidity or patient with his sin. Patience is patiently seeing it's done. Now, that really helped me as a mom. I'm not going to be patient with this child's sin and stupidity. I've got to be patient to see that he does the right thing and quits doing the wrong thing. Patiently, I've got to see it's done. Insistently. That's what patience does. Patient is very patient. (laughs) Are you patient? It's going to take patience to produce peace. A, arbitrate. Listen. That's going to take time. Again, listen to who? The party that you agree with? No, both parties. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you're going to have to listen to both sides. I find this a real exercise in the will Because basically speaking, I'm usually drawn to one side of the warring factions. And most of us are, probably. And it's it's easy to listen to the side I'm drawn to, for whatever reason. Very hard to listen to the other side. Another thing about being an arbitrator, a good arbitrator, a good reconciler, a good peacemaker, is to listen without lecturing. Can you do that? You'll never make peace between people if you're going to lecture them. And that's so hard. Somebody tells you their side. (gasps) You open your mouth, you have so much information to give. You have so many Bible verses that just fit this situation. You have so many opinions you want to load on their shoulders. Well, just shut up and say nothing. (laughs) That's really what the Bible says, but in nicer language. Listen without lecturing. An arbitrator patiently listens to both sides, hopefully as unbiased as they can be. T, talk quietly. Patience doesn't raise its voice. Anger raises its voice. A soft answer turns away wrath. Did you know that? I know that from experience in street work with gangs of teenagers. Up on a soapbox, in a most incredible din, I would begin to talk to them very quietly. Nobody could hear me, of course. And the temptation is to raise my voice over theirs, to get over it, to get louder, to take them on. They shout at me, I'll shout at them. And what happens? You escalate. And what you have to do is de-escalate. That takes self-control. Patience talks quietly. And as I would begin to talk quietly, they'd notice my mouth was 
moving and some around me would stop to see what I was and they couldn't hear so they'd say shh and you get an audience and you have no idea how hard that is try it next time your kids are having a Vietnam in the living room and what you do you raise your voice and they raise their voice and the whole thing escalates now come down de-escalate it patience never raises its voice patience intercedes I patience prays and E patience expects an answer you're never going to be a peacemaker unless you know what it is to pray and often peace is made on your knees often peace is made on your knees not only individually for yourself but for other people and many times I've said to God everything's been tried and God says to me prayer hasn't where were you and where have you been because if you'd been here and you'd been praying that problem would have been solved a long time ago it takes patience to pray on for reconciliation have you been praying for somebody to be reconciled with God in your family how long have you prayed when did you give up I have to confess that I gave up on some of the members of my family other people picked that prayer burden up for me fortunately and later I was able to take that back again but I gave up I didn't have the patience to stick it out I was reading George Mueller's life story he was a man of prayer he prayed and the most incredible things happened such an encouragement to read about all those answers to prayer instant answers to prayer but right at the end of his book which was getting me down a bit because every time he prayed for a million dollars it happened type of thing at the end of his book there was a little chapter on what happens when God doesn't answer prayer and I couldn't believe that was in George Mueller's life book but he told about seven or six or seven people he prayed for their salvation all his life and it took 36 years to see those prayers answered but one by one three of them before he died and four of them after he died came to Christ and the last chapter of his book was the most encouraging to me because it showed me the patience of his persevering painful peacemaking prayer on their behalf and every single one of them as I say four after he died three before he died came to Christ N network ask yourself who else can help look around over and over again you need to pray about this you need to think about this and you see these two people that need to be brought together and you need to ask yourself am I the best one to do this if I am then I must do it or is there someone else I could network could I pick up the phone and say could we do this do you think if you approach them or wrote a letter then that might open this up this is all involved in peacemaking C confront that's a whole subject in itself you can't bring two parties together unless you confront them in the end but I couldn't leave that one letter with only one word because there were so many what about compromise now this isn't peace at any price there has to be some sort of compromise when you've got the warring factions talking you've got to help both sides to move to give something and often when I'm in the middle of that situation which is too often for my liking but I find myself there all the time I say to each of these people can you each think of something you could give now this might take a long time weeks months maybe years but if you can get one of them to say well I'll give him this and the other one to say well I'll give him that that's the start compromise can you move a little bit 
could you just move one step towards her in this regard? Could you let down that particular demand? Just just that one, not the others, but that one. Could, could you let down this demand? And so you work with the parties. And E, earn the right to be the peacemaker. Have an example in your own life that you are at peace with people. Is there anyone in your life that you need to make peace with? Then don't expect God to use you as a peacemaker unless you are not necessarily at peace with them, for it takes two to make peace, as I've said, but that you're taking steps, that your attitude's right, that you're praying, that you're working, that you're doing something about it. And it takes power to make peace. And I have a whole other acrostic on power, but I don't have time to develop it. To persecute it, to hunt it down aggressively. You know, I think of Stuart on one occasion. He got in an airplane and flew all the way to Colorado to make peace between parents and children that were at war, Christians. Now, that's not to say what a wonderful thing he did at his own expense and all the rest of it. Sometimes that's what it's going to take to put yourself out that much, to pursue it, to aggressively hunt it down. Oh, organize peace meetings. Say to the kids, we're going to have a Camp David round our table tonight. Use an egg timer so everybody has that much time to state their case and others to respond. And yet they don't take up all the time. W, write the peace treaty out. Work it out, the details. E, energy. It's going to take a lot of emotional power. Power of perception, the power of personality, the power of persuasion. R, reiterate the biblical principles. Know them, lay them out. Now, it's going to take dynamite to do all this. And, of course, that's a word for the Holy Spirit. Dunamis. Dynamite. And remember, Jesus is the peacemaker. For this, we have Jesus. The Holy Spirit, Christ, his other self, is in our hearts to use us in this manner. Where is he going to use us? Where is this place of peace? In the family? You need to get into Ephesians 5. If you're going to keep the peace once it's been made, keep the unity of the Spirit, you're going to have to know the rules because there are rules to peace. If they're broken, you have war. So peace has rules. Parents and kids, maybe that's where you need to be reading in Deuteronomy, what it tells you, how as parents to make peace with your children and keep it. In the workplace, don't gossip. That'll help. It says in Proverbs that... An irritating word thrown onto a smoldering conversation can be like a log thrown on a fire and just feed and fuel the flames. Don't feed and fuel the flames with your tongue. That's not going to make peace. And in the church, in Philippians 4, there were two ladies. Stuart likes to call them odious and soon touchy. (laughs) Udious and syntyche, their names were, actually. But Paul wrote and said, I plead with, odious and soon touchy, (laughs) to agree with each other. These were mighty women, Bible teachers, winners of Christians, you know, marvelous leaders in the church. And they just got across each other, probably on doctrinal issue or something or other, or methodology or whatever. And he appeals to this peacemaker and he calls him, oh, my true yoke fellow. In England, we have a term for people that are good people. We call them a good egg. <laughs> they're a good egg, or they're a bad egg. That's just an uh, expression we have. 
Well, this guy was about to get his egg scrambled, as you can see, because Paul asked him to get in between two warring women in the church, which was not a very nice thing to do, but he appealed to them. Please help these women, he says, who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. And so the effort is made to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why should it matter? Because his name comes into disrepute when we don't live together and love each other as we should. There's a little story at the end of the parable of the father and the son and the prodigal. And if you want a summation of all that I've been saying, read it when you get home. Let me just point out one or two things. There were two prodigals, one that ended up in the pigsty, the other stayed in the pew. And eventually when the guy in the pigsty came home and repented and the father offered his gift of forgiveness and it was reconciliation, they had a big party, had a big party. And the older brother, who'd never left home and ended up in a pigsty, who'd stayed in the pew, just fuming about other things, maybe didn't have the guts to leave home and end up in the pigsty, but he was so mad with his younger brother, do you remember? And the father acted as the peacemaker. Now, if you want to know how to be a peacemaker, take that piece of scripture and figure it out. It's a wonderful, wonderful illustration of all I've been saying. He took the initiative. He went out to the older brother, the Pharisee, in me. (laughs) He took the initiative, and he got shot at for his trouble, which is probably what will happen to you and me. And the older son got after the father for forgiving the younger son. His peacemaking efforts looked as though they were going to come to nothing. So we have to be prepared to be shot at. But he spoke the truth in love. He wouldn't let the older brother away with it. He confronted him. He laid down the biblical principles. He said, it is right that we rejoice. This guy has repented. He was dead and he's alive again. That's right. And what you're doing is wrong. Come in. He pled with him. After he'd spoken the truth in love and said, grow up, even though he said it lovingly, he appealed to him and he begged him to come in to the party. Of course, the Pharisee in me doesn't want to go to the party. The father reasons with the son that mercy and forgiveness won, the offending brother be restored, that retribution be outlawed, that loving welcome be extended. Instead, the Pharisee is offended. He wants the boy to crawl, you see. I've met the Pharisee in me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this peace business sounds so easy, and yet it's so painful. It's painful for you to make it. It's painful for us to keep it. And Lord, some of us are part of the problem and some of us are part of the solution and you would have all of us be part of the solution. You call us to be like you, a peacemaker. We shall be called the sons of God if we're peacemakers because that's what you are, a peacemaker. Show us how. Help us to bear the cost of it, the pain of it. Help us to patiently see that it's done. And lend us the power of the Spirit to do it. And send us into a disintegrating world where people are isolating themselves more and more. 
so that more and more friction will result for there'll be no talk and no understanding and no trying to understand the other in the world in which we live and the world ahead of us. Help us to be like Christ. We ask it that homes may be mended, marriages rebuilt, parents and children be reconciled, neighborhoods live at peace, crime cease, the earth shall be filled with the glory and the peace of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Help us to order our lives according to the orders of the God of order. And so know the tranquility you promise. Help us to enjoy our heritage. For you said, peace I give unto you, peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. So be it. May we go in peace. For Christ's sake. Amen.